The Bob Murphy Show, episode 87. Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. We've got another very interesting episode here for you folks. I am interviewing physicist Dr. Zabine Hasenfelder, who is an author and theoretical physicist researching quantum gravity and now is working on dark matter and dark energy. She's a research fellow at the Frankfurt Institute for Advanced Studies, where she leads the Analog Systems for Gravity Duels group. And her book is Lost in Math, How Beauty Leads Physics Astray. However, what we're talking about in this episode is not her book, but rather um, I had read two pieces from her recently and I thought I got to get this lady on the podcast. This is awesome stuff. So basically the first half of this episode, we're going to be talking about dark matter and dark energy first, just to define what it is and then to raise more philosophical questions about, Hey, is this just a, a placeholder basically for physicists to say, we really don't know what's going on here. The observations don't match our standard theory. So let's, invent these new concepts. So we talk about that sort of thing and you'll, you'll get a better sense of what actually happened in the state of modern physics and cosmology on that score. But then also I wanted to have her on. So those of you who follow my work on the economics of climate change, you may have seen when I responded to it, but I was very surprised to see um, her article in the New York times on the climate models and specifically, the title was, so this, this ran back in June 12th, 2019. The title, of course, the, the Times gives the title. It's not that the author picks it. But the title they gave was, Is Climate Change Inconvenient or Existential? Only Supercomputers Can Do the Math. And so I like this because I thought it was very honest to say that right now, these computer models that are simulating the Earth's climate system, they're, they're open-ended. In other words, they're not even though the, they, we have agreement on the basic equations of the natural laws, the physical laws involved, they have to take shortcuts to yield an answer, a prediction, because they are such a complicated system. And so the point being that these models, the, their predictions about what's going to happen, even if governments, quote, do nothing, uh, she was saying, range anywhere from an existential threat to humanity down to just a mere inconvenience. So I thought that was interesting that the New York Times ran that because it seemed like they were implicitly admitting, huh, maybe the state of climate science is not as, hey, case closed, there's a consensus, boom, 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 stop being deniers, as, as we're being led to believe, at least in U.S. politics. So that's the sort of thing that I'm going to be talking about with her in the second half of the interview. Fascinating stuff. Without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Zabine Hasenfelder. Dr. Hasenfelder, thanks for joining us on The Bob Murphy Show. Nice to meet you. Just for my listeners so they can understand your background, can you just briefly explain you know, what, what your current position is? I'm a theoretical physicist and a research fellow at the Frankfurt Institute for Advanced Studies. 
Okay, great. And what what was your like dissertation on or your your doctoral work? Well, I I did make my PhD on um, physics at the Large Hadron Collider, so I, I'm a particle physicist by training. But now I actually work more in the foundations of quantum mechanics and astrophysics, so dark matter and and stuff like that. Okay, great. So if we could just start, I think a lot of people they've heard these terms: dark matter, dark energy. They don't really know, uh, you know, where did it come from. So if you if you don't mind, could you give us just a brief like history in terms of physics and cosmology where was it in the 1930s, for example, that this, this idea was first posited and can you explain like what the, the observational problem was and, and why did, why did this concept even become a, a possibility? Yeah, so I'll try to do this. But honestly, this is the talk that I normally give that takes like one hour. So I'll try to make it brief. <laughs> uh, so let me first by by saying something uh, that a lot of people get wrong. Dark matter and dark energy are, are two different things. They don't right. necessarily have something to do with each other. So um, let me just start with saying saying maybe the obvious. <laughs> um, the theory of um, gravity that we're currently using, so that's Einstein's theory of general relativity, um, tells us that uh, space-time curves in response to all types of matter and energy that are in this space-time. Um, so um, basically, by observing what the universe does, you know, for example, expanding, we can tell what types of matter and energy are in the universe. Um, so, so this is one way that we can establish that there has to be some additional matter and some some weird kind of energy uh, in the universe. But um, this is not how originally the first evidence for dark matter came about. Um, it was, um, I believe he was uh, Swiss, uh, um, Zwicky is his name, so I think I'm not. I know he's not German, but I'm not sure if he's Swiss or Austrian. So um, uh, what he did was he observed a galaxy cluster. So a galaxy cluster that's a collection of some hundred or maybe a thousand galaxies that are bound together by their own gravitational pull. And uh, so he observed a cluster known as the Coma Cluster, and um, he basically saw that the galaxies in that cluster were moving faster than he was expecting. Why did he have an expectation for how fast these galaxies should be moving in the first place? Well, that's because the velocity um, is determined by the total amount of matter that is in the cluster. So you see these different galaxies, you can estimate how much matter you see, and that should tell you how quickly these galaxies move around each other. Um, but um, this estimate just didn't fit with the observation. So what Zwicky did was he he postulated that there has to be more matter in this galaxy cluster, which he couldn't see. And he called mm. this dunkle materie. So that means dark matter. So okay. and, and that was sometime in the 1930s. So this is by no means a new observation. But I think that in the first couple of decades, people were more like, yeah, you know, there's something that someone has observed that doesn't quite add up. So they didn't really pay a lot of attention to it. But as the years passed, you know, there were more and more observations, uh, notably those by Vera Rubin, who basically saw the same thing in individual galaxies. So you observe how, how fast the stars move around the center of the galaxy. And there mm. too, you see that they move faster than what you expect just based on the visible matter. 
And again, this is a mismatch between observation and the predictions of your theory. And you can fix it by postulating that there has to be some additional matter in the galaxies um, that we don't see. Uh, so dark matter, again, does the trick. And so this was, I think, sometime in, in the 70s. And since then, there have mm -hmm. been further other observations that all fall into the same story. You know, there's something that mm -hmm. doesn't add up between the predictions of our theories on the observations and dark matter fixes this mismatch. So can I use an analogy just to, for the layperson? So if, suppose we, you know, we have a telescope and we're looking at an individual solar system and we didn't see any star, but we saw a bunch of objects that were as big as, you know, let's, let's say Mars, and they were rotating around the central point, but we couldn't see anything there. And so then it would be logical to say, okay, there must be a very massive item in the middle of that system because otherwise, why would these planet-sized objects be, be rotating around something? Like they would just fly off into, into space. And so there must be something there that even though we can't directly observe it, is, is that a good analogy? But So it wasn't at an individual solar system level, but it was at either the galaxy or a cluster of galaxies? It is similar to that uh, in, in that we only observe really the gravitational pull. Um, mm -hmm. And um, then a plausible explanation for this is, well, there has to be something that is causing this gravitational pull, like in your um, analogy. Mm -hmm. But of course, there's, you know, the, the other option is that there's just something about gravity that we're not getting right. Well, yeah, so that, and that's what my next question was going to be. So I'm glad you you went in that direction. So I think if it were just a matter of, um, no pun intended by using the word, but if it were just a, an issue of one area out in outer space that there was this anomalous behavior, but every other, all the other calculations and observations were within tolerable limits of the standard theory, then you'd say, okay, maybe out there there's whatever, a black hole or something that we just don't, we can't observe. But my understanding is when you... Now with this theory of dark matter and dark energy, it's something like 95% of the total universe is postulated to be dark in that matter. Is that is that roughly correct? Um, yeah, two things. One thing that, that uh, I, I have to say, I should have said this right in the beginning, mm -hmm. this term dark is really, really misleading because it leaves you with the impression that the stuff actually absorbs light, like it swallows it mm -hmm. or something, like, like a right. black hole, like you could say right. a black mm -hmm. hole is dark. But what it actually is, it's transparent. So light just goes through. You can't see it. Mm -hmm. So, but you know how it is with with terminology, right? Uh, sure, I mean, yeah. it, dark matter sounds cool, and this expression just mm -hmm. stuck. But really, it should be called transparent matter. It's the same with with dark energy, by the way. It's not okay. actually dark. It's it's transparent. You can't you can't mm -hmm. see it. Um, uh, so you you quote this number ninety five percent. Maybe let me briefly say uh, what this uh, refers to. As I said in the beginning, um, you can um, use observations uh, to infer what kind of matter and energy there has to be in the universe, and so you can make a breakdown of this matter energy budget. Uh, and this tells us that there's something like seventy five percent or so is um, dark energy. Um, and then there are like 20 something percent is dark matter and and the rest, which is about 4.5 percent uh, or something like this is is normal matter like the stuff that that uh, we are made of. 
Um, so this is where this with this 95% comes uh, from. It's the combination of dark matter and dark energy. Um, if you only look at the matter sector, then you um, have about 85% of this, which is dark matter. Okay, so... I guess maybe right now is it is it a good time for you to explain because in the beginning you made the distinction between dark matter and dark energy. So I think we get how the dark matter you know reconciles general relativity with the astronomical observations. What what is it that the concept of dark energy? What what problem does that solve? Dark dark energy is uh, what is responsible for the expansion of the universe accelerating. So, so it's something that it affects the universe on really, really large scales. Uh, and it's just uh, observationally, it's a different thing. And also in, in the way that this problem is solved, theoretically, mm -hmm. it's just it's just an entirely different concept. Of course, you know, there are certain theories that say, well, maybe both of them have the same origin. Certainly, this is sure. something that people are thinking mm -hmm. about, but um, it doesn't necessarily have to be the case. They could be entirely different things. Okay, so that's something too. If you could elaborate on, um, so is is it a correct statement to say? So it, the the standard theory is that long ago there was the Big Bang that all the matter and energy was in a single point, and then it explodes outward. And so you would think, just normally, with gravitational force, that the universe's expansion would continually be decelerating. If if you didn't right right just the standard, you know, oh, there's gravity and it should be slowing it down. But are you saying that now they think that at some point in the past the expansion actually accelerated? Well, yes, it accelerated in the in the past, and it will um, it will again. Actually, it accelerates right now, and it will continue right. to accelerate. And this is what what dark energy does. So the funny thing about dark energy, uh, and and that's that's basically the way that it is defined, is that it does not dilute as the universe. Um, expands. Um, actually, mm -hmm. the, the simplest case of dark energy is what Einstein called the cosmological constant. It's just a constant of nature. And as mm -hmm. the name says, uh, it's a constant. It, it does right. not change as the universe expands. But here's the funny thing. All the other stuff in the universe, so the matter that we are made of and also radiation, you know, photons, light, uh, stuff like this, it does dilute as the universe expands. It's just if the volume increases, then the, the energy density goes down. So what happens if the universe expands is, is that all this normal stuff becomes less and less relevant. And eventually the only thing that really matters is this dark energy. And dark mm -hmm. energy has the effect of accelerating the expansion. So there was a phase in the very early universe that is often referred to as um, inflation, at least a lot of, uh, you know, cosmologists think that this happened. Uh, um, right. You know, there's some some little fine print here that maybe it, it was not actually this way, but that's how the current story goes. So you had this phase of inflation that was an accelerated expansion. Then this ended. Now, um, then there was a matter-dominated phase, and then at some point, the density of the matter and radiation becomes so small that the cosmological constant takes over, and then you get this accelerated expansion. Mm -hmm. And if, if, if it's really a cosmological constant, then this is just how the universe will end, basically. It will continue to expand and expand faster and faster, and that's that. Mm -hmm. Can you give us at least some intuition, if perhaps the, the actual details are too technical, but, but how is it that we are pretty confident that the expansion of the universe is accelerating. Like what, how do we, in other words, it's not that, Oh, a hundred thousand years ago, humans measured the expansion of the universe and now we're doing it right now and it's speeding <laughs> up. Right. So how, no. 
so how, how is it that how do how do we know that? Like, what what observations do we see that the expansion acceleration is the the hypothesis that explains the observations? Yeah, that's not how it works. So actually, this this difference in the acceleration between now and a hundred years ago is entirely negligible. You know, on, on the right, on the yeah. cosmological because we're talking mm-hmm. about about billions of years. Okay, so a hundred years, you can forget about this. No, what what we do is that um, we use that the speed of light is finite. Um, so we can look back into the past if we observe galaxies that are very, very far away. Um, and um, so what um, what we can do is we, we observe the light that comes from these distant galaxies, and um, it has traveled for a long time. Um, you know, again, we're talking about something like uh, a billion years or, or stuff like this um, mm-hmm. through our universe. And um, so if we measure this light right now from galaxies at uh, a, a variety of distances, we can we can infer what the universe did in between. And um, so what what you need for this is, of course, you you kind of need to know what kind of light was emitted at the source, because otherwise you could just see, well, any variation that we see, well, maybe it was a different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where um, certain types of supernova become very important. You know, this is what um, the astrophysicists like to call standard candles, um, because they they have a fairly regular pattern to them. Um, so if you observe them at certain uh, at different distances, um, you can tell what happened in between um, from, from, you know, a very old uh, supernova to a younger supernova. And um, the only way to explain these observations is that there has to have been a cosmological constant that caused an, an accelerated expansion. There was a Nobel Prize for this a few years ago um, um, for this uh, supernova mm-hmm. observation. Okay, so let me paraphrase that. So if, if light were instantaneous or virtually instantaneous in terms of its speed so that when we looked out, we were just seeing the, you know, the distant stars or galaxies as they are, quote, right now. All we would be able to tell, like if we took an observation today and then took an observation next week, we'd really just be able to see how they're moving today. We wouldn't really have a sense of is the expansion faster or slower than it was a billion years ago. But you're saying because light is a finite speed, when we look at something a billion light years away, we're actually seeing the motion of that thing a billion years ago. And so by yeah. with that trick, there's a sense in which we, so is it is it close? I mean, I realize this is a little bit perhaps inaccurate, but is it something like we're looking at two galaxies that are close together a billion light years away and we can see how quickly is the further galaxy moving away from the closer one. And then we can look at two galaxies that are close together two billion light years away and we get a sense of, of how th- that that change in the billion years is affecting the acceleration? Yes, it's so. Uh, one, one thing to say is that uh, you notice what the, your question, like what were, what would we see if uh, the speed of light was infinite, is is, is very mm. complicated because basically general relativity wouldn't work at all. Yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> so, so that's uh, yeah. So that's that's a really hard question to answer. But uh, loosely speaking, uh, what we see is the is the difference between. Um, uh, between the how the light travels from two um, supernova uh, at uh, different distances. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So just to summarize, then it, it's uh, I'm, I'm, it sounds interesting. Is it that for some observations, it looks like there needs to be 
it looks like gravity's too weak. In other words, like you, you see galaxies rotating around a central point, and if if all the matter that were there is the directly observable, you know, stars and plasma or whatever, then the 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 speed, the rotational speed, they should just be splitting apart. So it seems like the gravitational force is stronger to hold them there, and so the only way to explain that, if if general relativity is correct, is that there must be transparent matter that's also there that's creating additional gravitational force. But then it's almost like the opposite problem when it comes to the expansion of the universe itself. You would think that if general relativity is is, is it is correct and that's the only thing, then the expansion should be decelerating and yet it's accelerating. And so the way to fix that is the positive dark energy. Yeah, right. Okay, so... So I guess the, you know, the, and then like we said, these aren't just little rounding errors. This is huge. Like when you try to reconcile everything all together, it's something like 95% of what we think exists is this transparent stuff. And perhaps only 5% is the stuff that we directly observe. So especially since the the two, do you know what I mean when I say like they're opposite problems that the, the one, it seems like there's there's not enough mass, and on the other one, it seems like so it seems like gravity's too weak on the one hand, and that's what we need dark matter to explain. On the other hand, it's almost like gravity's yeah. Too, I, I, too, I wouldn't say too strong. They're just they're just different. <laughs> okay, they're different. They, they, yeah. they do different things. Yeah. Right. So I, I guess are there some people who posit that you know th- these are just uh, placeholders? These terms, dark matter and dark energy, are just placeholders for our ignorance. And really, it's just maybe general relativity is not correct, and th- and that's what's going on here. And we, if we could just find a better theory, then the five percent of what we could observe would be consistent with the observations. Yes, there, there are certainly people talking about this, um, but these are actually different theories. Um, so, mm-hmm. um, so um, one ha- one has to be a little careful here. So, so dark matter and dark energy are not just placeholders, as you put it, but they actually have very distinct properties. So um, I, I previously said that that really um, dark matter should be called transparent matter, so that so the term dark is not particularly helpful. But that mm-hmm. it is called matter does not just mean, well, it's any kind of stuff, but um, right. mm-hmm. physicists actually mean something very concrete by the term matter. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and and that's that's uh, you know not not uh, an empty statement because it means that um, if you want to fix this mismatch, you can use stuff mm-hmm. that behaves pretty much like normal matter. And that's a very simple explanation. So that's the great appeal of dark matter is that it's just parametrically a simple explanation. At least that was the original idea. Okay, so mm-hmm. uh, again, there's some fine print here that says, well, maybe it's actually more complicated than people thought it is. Uh, but at least that that was the idea. And it's it's the same with dark energy. As I said previously, the, the simplest case of dark energy is just the cosmological constant. So that's a constant of nature. You know, it's, it's hard to think of any explanation that can possibly... Uh, be simpler. Um, Mm. But as you say, um, there are people who are pursuing an alternative explanation, um, uh, which is that there's something about gravity that we're we're not properly understanding. And then, you know, there's the question, like, which of the two explanations is actually the better one? And and this is where it becomes really, really complicated, because um, you have to ask, well, which, which actually fits all the data better? Um, Right. Yeah. So uh, people are still fighting about it. So I presumably nobody has yet discovered an alternative theory that that explains it better. Otherwise, that would be the the dominant theory. 
Well, well, it depends on exactly what you're what you're asking. So um, mm-hmm. there are um, so um, there is a body of theories that is known as modified gravity. Okay. Uh, that's basically not um, gravity the way that Einstein taught us that it works, but well, it's modified, right? So and you can mm-hmm. write uh, down theories for this, and these theories actually work better as dark than dark matter um, for galaxies. So if you're only looking at the galaxies, um, then modified gravity does a better job. But of course, as I said earlier, we have a lot of observations for dark matter um, that that come from very different scales, like from the galaxy clusters. And then I didn't talk about this, but there are observations from gravitational lensing and from the cosmic microwave background and from the large scale structure. And so there's galactic filaments and all that kind of stuff. And if you look at this, then modified gravity does not to be working, does not seem to be working all that well. Or in some cases, one just doesn't know how to make such a prediction. So, so the, t- the theory is not up to it, or people don't know mm-hmm. how to solve the equations. So um, you see the, the question like, which one is the better theory um, depends on exactly what kind of data you're looking at. Okay, great. Um, j- just for the be- the benefit of our listeners who don't know too much about this. I mean, the, the reason general relativity is is the, the, the presumptive theory here is that it, it did outperform Newton's theory of, of gravity. There's things like the orbit of Mercury and, and such, right, that, that Einstein's general relativity made certain predictions that were better fitting the observations than Newton's original law of gravity. Yes, uh, general relativity is an extremely well-confirmed uh, theory. And... Uh, Newtonian gravity uh, has its limit. You know, it's a good approximation. Mm-hmm. Like if you want to calculate how an apple falls from the tree, stuff like that, right, uh, you right. can use Newtonian gravity. But uh, once you're dealing with objects that have large relative velocities or you have strong space-time curvature, like black hole horizon, that kind of stuff, uh, you need to use general relativity. Okay, so I'm wondering, is, is the following, are you? is this a, are these a series of true statements that, depending on what class of phenomena we're studying, physicists have a theoretical mechanism that explains it very well. So if you're looking at the subatomic level, they've got, you know, quantum electrodynamics and and that does very well. If you're looking at um, the solar system or perhaps a several solar systems, standard general relativity does a great job. But then without the, without postulating dark matter and dark energy, general relativity doesn't, quote, work very well when it comes to much bigger distances. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, is it is it possible, and, and again, I'm just curious like, what people are looking at, it, just, just as, hey, we've got quantum physics to explain the subatomic level, if you're at a bigger scale than general relativity is what we use, is it possible then that that just means, okay, for something that's even bigger scale than the solar system, we use something else, not general relativity, just like quantum physics you know, it works great at the subatomic level, but it's sort of impractical or harder to apply at the solar system level. Is it possible? Is there, is there something like that that maybe the next evolution would be different theoretical mechanisms depending on the scale? Yeah. So, so this is what modified gravity is supposed to do. Okay. It's just that we don't right. actually have uh, we don't actually have the theory. <laughs> so, um, right. okay. And also, I have to say that um, we know just observationally that um, it's not at a certain distance where the deviation from general relativity becomes important, but it's at a certain 
acceleration, odd as this sounds. Um, so if the acceleration is too small, you know, if you mm -hmm. if you go out in the galaxies to the far distances, then the acceleration that is acting on the stars from, from the gravitational pull becomes smaller. And we know that at, at a certain acceleration, there are these new effects that uh, start uh, kicking in. Um, so it's not it's not at a specific distance, um, but it's, okay. it's, it's mm -hmm. an uh, acceleration. Okay. And it's just that in practice, to get to that level of the acceleration, you're going really yeah. far out. So, okay, I got you. That's great. Um, so can you, I know this is one of the areas where you're working in, so... Um, I think you've you've been somewhat critical of these alternate, like they call M O N D. Uh, yeah, so but I, I'm kind of critical of pretty much everything. So oh, okay, yeah, well, so, but, yeah. so am I in well, economics, well, but yeah. The thing good. of so so M O N D stands for modified Newtonian dynamics, uh, and mm -hmm. and that is basically an approximation to whatever is the theory of modified gravity that people are looking for. But actually, I'm not mm -hmm. really critical of Mont because it it works it works very well for the task that it was designed for. It works well for the galaxies, for the rotation curves. It's just mm -hmm. that we know already that strictly speaking, Mond is wrong. You know, it's wrong. Mm -hmm. The same way that we know Newtonian gravity is wrong because it's just okay. it's mm -hmm. just an approximation. Or to put this more formally, Mond does not respect all the symmetries of general relativity. So strictly speaking, it's incompatible with general relativity, which does not work. Okay, so, mm -hmm. um, but phenomenologically, if you just look at the data, basically, and you, you want to have a curve that fits the data, then Mond does well. So there seems to be something true about it. <laughs> So, right, right. Uh, so, so that's that's the one thing. But as I said previously, you you can't use Mond to say anything about the cosmic microwave background. It's just not in the regime of applicability. No one really knows what to say about it. So, for these cases, you still have to uh, uh, draw on dark matter. Um, so, on the other hand. I'm also critical of dark matter, in particular when it comes to um, galaxies. Um, there are, you know, the, the thing is that a galaxy is not, it's not like a, like uh, an atom or something, you know, atoms are all very regular, you know, they are all pretty much mm -hmm. the same. Um, and we have these like uh, 120 different atoms that are in the periodic table and that's pretty much it. But galaxies are all one of a type. So really, if you want to, um, if you want to predict what a galaxy does, you have to do um, rather complicated computer simulations. And so um, there are a lot of, uh, well, a lot is maybe saying too much, but say half a dozen to a dozen, depending on the size, um, computer simulations that study the formation of structures in the universe and also galaxies uh, with dark matter. So all these um, computer simulations um, work with this dark matter paradigm. And for a long time, you know, for 20 years or so, they have consistently found that the result of these simulations do not fit with the data. Okay, mm -hmm. so so what, what have people done? Well, they haven't said whether maybe dark matter is not the right explanation, but instead they have um, uh, improved their computer codes um, by adding additional parameters. Until now, we are at a stage where these uh, computer simulations actually do reproduce the universe pretty much the way that we see it. So, and that's all well and fine, you know, um, I, I, I really like these computer simulations because they, they produce beautiful <laughs> visualizations, uh, so it's hard not mm -hmm. to like it. Um, but um, one, one has to be very clear that, that these are no longer predictions, you know, these, these are computer codes that have been tuned until they reproduce right. what we observe. So then you can no longer say, mm -hmm. well, it, well it, it predicts what we observe, right? 
Um, and so what, what I find peculiar about this is that it, it takes such a huge amount of effort to get the galaxies right with dark matter, you know, with all these additional parameters that, that you have to add on all these astrophysical processes. When Mond, you know, can do this basically with one parameter, it's one equation and it does the job. And mm -hmm. this makes me think there has to be something true about it, something that this dark matter idea just doesn't capture. There's something really missing um, in, in this uh, dark matter paradigm that Mon gets right. So personally, I think that the right answer is somewhere, somehow a combination of both. Okay, great. Um, so I, I think some people who are familiar with the history of physics and astronomy, th this what you just said there, that might remind them of like in the Ptolemaic model and how they had the, the famous epi cycles. And so, oh, it's, yeah, the, they're going around in circles, but maybe there's circles within the circles and so on. Yeah. And so is, is there, is that, are some people like, does that, does that memory ring true to some people that it looks like the yes, X post, we can just keep fiddling with it to get it. So it works, but, but it's not that that was some pure, simple theory that, that was there from the outset that we just, after the facts, to twiddle the dials to, to make it fit the observation? Yeah, it's very much comparable to this. So um, one has to one has to be clear here, though. Um, it, it's not that there's actually something wrong with trying to fit observations by amending mm -hmm. a model. But the issue is that one of the one the biggest appeal of, of this dark matter explanation was that it's a simple explanation. And right. and now with adding all these uh, epicycles, um, yeah. uh, it, it it becomes increasingly less simple. And then mm -hmm. um, you have this alternative explanation that is Mond, which is a very very simple explanation. So just parametrically, um, uh, Mond is vastly preferred, at least on galactic scales. Um, mm -hmm. So so and then again we're we're back to this complicated question: like how do you how do you decide which is the data to look at uh, to draw conclusions about which model is the better one? Okay, so I guess as we, as we wrap up this discussion, because I want to ask you about your your New York Times piece on the climate modeling in, in the last half of this interview, but I guess, so if you had to summarize, can you just give us your general thoughts on, like, do, do you think physicists, they have a, gen, like a, a pretty good command of of the forces of nature here, and it's just a matter of, you know, tinkering with, or do you, do you think, is it possible that 50 years from now they're going to realize, wow, there was just this much more elegant theory that, you know, it took, it took this genius to discover this team to discover. I realize that might be an unfair question. I hope it will not take 50 years because I hope okay. to see it in, in my lifetime. <laughs> no, I think uh -huh. that uh, what, whatever is the right theory will turn out to have properties of both um, dark matter and modified gravity. And this is just, or dark matter and mont, um, because mm -hmm. that's a theory that we already have. But that's an option that uh, no one actually wants to study because, uh, you know, people fall into either of these camps but don't uh, want to split into both camps um, so that's that's my perspective on on the matter and I, I certainly hope that um, with increasingly better data it will become increasingly obvious um, that uh, dark matter alone uh, does a crappy job oh okay so that's interesting I didn't really, so is is there hope in your mind that as we get better telescopes and and think that there's just gonna be a lot more raw observations to work with and that'll help Oh, yes. Yeah, I, well, well, this has mm -hmm. already happened because uh, mm -hmm. people can observe now a lot of, um, you know, uh, galaxies, types of galaxies like the very, very dim galaxies and galaxies that are mm -hmm. very far away and all that kind of stuff that that just was not possible 20 years ago. 
And and this has um, certainly taught us a lot about um, the predictive power of MONT, for example, because uh, a MONT fits all these new observations uh, quite well, whereas dark matter has had big difficulties accommodating these new observations. So and, and then it, it happened again what what you just said that people tried mm. uh, try to fix the theory. Okay, so just be the last thing I, I want to just clarify to make sure I understand it. Are you saying the 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 workhorse versions of Mond right now they don't rely on any form of transparent matter? They just take observed, you know, I call it classical matter. I don't know if that's the right term, but standard stuff that we observe that people in the year nineteen hundred would have recognized as such, and they can. That's all it uses. So it just it just has different equations describing the force of gravity at those scales. Yeah, that, that, that's how MOND works, yeah. Okay, okay. So it's basically you postulate that um, at a certain acceleration, the, the one over R square law of gravity just becomes a different law. That, that's literally how it works. You know, it's, it's kindergarten mm -hmm. math. <laughs> okay, so sort of like, um, is it a good analogy to say Newton's laws were a, a decent approximation as long as the velocities weren't close to the speed of light? And so the same token here that general relativity was a decent approximation as long as the acceleration wasn't too too large. Is is that a, a fair way of putting it? Uh, as long as I guess does it, does yeah. Mond read well, does Mond mathematically so general relativity works well at large acceleration, but 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 yeah okay. Uh, other than but this, Mond, Mond works at smaller acceleration. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right, very good. Um, so now uh, we realize we're we're running out of time here. I did want to ask you; it, it caught my eye. On June twelfth of twenty nineteen, you had an opinion piece in the New York Times. The title—I realize they probably gave the title here—but the title they gave was "Is Climate Change Inconvenient or Existential? Only Supercomputers Can Do the Math." And then the subtitle they gave is "Accurate Predictions of Earth's Warming Require Computers That Are Too Expensive for One Country or Institution." So can you just summarize what your, I mean, that's a very provocative title they gave. Can you just summarize what your, <laughs> yeah, what your I, argument was? Yeah, I didn't was? write the title, you know, the way that it's yeah, uh, I know. I, usually I write works. Stuff too. Well, I want to put ahead, uh, I, I told you this earlier, so I'm not a climate scientist, you know. I, mm. I, I interview people about this kind of stuff and I, you know, I, at least I'm a physicist, so I, I understand mm. a little bit of the papers. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, so basically the message I'm conveying is, um, what, what I have learned from, from talking to people in the field. And so, uh, what I'm writing about there is, um, an idea that comes from, um, a group of climate, uh, scientists, um, who have, um, basically realized that, um, to, to make better, um, long-term predictions, um, they need more computing power to get the grid size down to a kilometer mm -hmm. or something. And this is just something which uh, currently no nation is, um, you know, able to finance. I, um, I actually think it's not a question of being able, but um, of not having the will. Um, mm -hmm. So they have this proposal that we need an international center um, you know where where everyone all over the world uh, could could draw on uh, the result of these the results of these computer models um, to make better in the sense of more accurate uh, long term predictions for um, the climate 
climate trends. And I think that's that's a very sensible thing to do. And I'm somewhat shocked, actually, that they were not able to to get this funded because, you know, in 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 if you compare it to the amount of money that we will have to spend on um, adapting to climate change or, or on mitigating climate change, then this is really peanuts. And you want to have mm-hmm. these better predictions to to make decisions about what to do. Right. Right. So can I so just for some of the technical detail here. Um, I forget the pronunciation. Is it Navier-Stokes equation? Am I saying that? <laughs> You're asking correct? the wrong person. Yeah, oh, okay. something yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, l- let me say what I took you to be saying, and also because I've done a bunch of research myself on this. So I, so sometimes cynics will say, "Oh, the, the, those climate models, they just you know turn the dials to." It's sort of like what we were saying ab- about the um, you know the dark matter that they can just, you know, refine the models to, to match, to match the, uh, the previous observations. But I have seen the, the people who create these climate models, they say, well, we're constrained by the laws of physics. So we can't just say anything that the model has to respect the laws of physics. But my understanding, and I think your article also alluded to this is that, I mean, the earth is a very complex dynamical system with, you know, water and atmosphere and clouds. And I mean, it's, it's really, there's a lot going on. Fluid dynamics is famously difficult to model. And so the, the, even if we thought we had the exact correct equations to describe the basic forces, um, we couldn't actually solve it. You know, we, we couldn't do a simulation of the, of the actual Earth's climate system with this, you know, solar radiation and everything going on. And so they have to make approximations and right. And so they, they divide the Earth up into large grids and then they sort of do approximations of, of what happens inside that grid rather than they obviously don't model it down to individual molecules and things like that. That would just be way too complex. And so that, so that is, so that's number one, why different computer simulations yield different predictions is because the, the way they, they decide to make the assumptions to, to, to take like computational shortcuts because the underlying equations are too difficult to solve right now with existing computing power. Um, so is, is yeah, that, you, so so the issue is not really that the complications are too too difficult. It's just that it would take too long. Okay, it would take too so, long. Yeah. So it's really a matter of uh, how, how well can you make these uh, comput- mm-hmm. computations on on the on the hardware that you have available. Um, and and so yeah, that, that's exactly right. So one one of the major reasons that the uh, long term predictions of the the different models um, diverge. You know, if you've seen this graph. Um, in, in the IPCC report, then you have this this shaded area, right, where the where the right. predictions mm-hmm. uh, diverge from each other. So, so you know, by the year uh, 2100, um, the the average warming could be anything between two and five uh, degrees. This is what this headline referred to: like, uh, is it existential or a mere mere inconvenience? So, so um, these d- three degrees make a big difference. So you want you really want to know better, and at least that's that's my perspective. And um, it makes a big difference how um, the different models treat um, the processes on the scales that the models can no longer resolve. Uh, one of the biggest issue, um, for example, are certain types of clouds. Um, mm-hmm. they, they just have to make certain um, assumptions about uh, how the processes in these clouds work, uh, but these are not uh, actually computed from scratch uh, on the machine because it's just a um, it, it would just take too long. So um, getting down the resolution 
um, of these computer models um, um, would very plausibly, you know, you, you cannot actually know uh, exactly before you've done it, uh, but uh, it would very plausibly bring down the discrepancies between the predictions of the models. So this was this would give us uh, much more information about uh, what we have to expect, and therefore also would give us information about what to invest in, you know, how to deal with mm -hmm. the situation. Yeah, so it's, I mean, my... Again, I'm an economist, but I, I do a lot of work on the economics of climate change. So yes, when I first got into this area, this is, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, I started reading the IPCC reports. And the, what my conclusion was, and I, I would, I'm curious about your reaction, is I thought, okay, th this isn't like a, a hoax in the sense that, you know, these climate scientists are all part of this big conspiracy. But what I did think was, the the confidence with which they reported their results was was vastly overrated. In other words, they were leading the public, or at least some of the more outspoken ones, were leading the public to believe if if you know if governments don't do X, Y, and Z, we know for sure that these awful things are going to happen. And and I thought, no, really, like with with my understanding of of how you're making those predictions, you know, there, there's a lot of uncertainty involved in those calculations. So I thought they were at least some of them were misrepresenting the degree of confidence they could have in, the, in those predictions. <laughs> you know, uh, it's probably true that some people have overstated the confidence of the predictions, but at least the people that I've been talking to have been very mm -hmm. clear that, um, you know, they are always talking about a, a distribution of possibilities. You know, this is basically, right. mm -hmm. it doesn't have anything particular to do even with uh, with climate models, but look at any model in any area of science. The only thing mm -hmm. it, it will give you is statements to a certain level of confidence. Um, right. Mm. So um, there, there is a certain distribution of possible outcomes um, in, in, in the next 100 years. And you have to uh, and this is where the economic uh, economics part uh, comes in. You have to ask, how do we deal with this uncertainty? How much risk are we willing to take uh, and uh, where do we invest our money um, to handle this risk and um, to make this assessment um, smartly? Um, depending on what your values are, of course, um, you want to have a good assessment of this uncertainty. And, and certainly better, uh, more accurate predictions um, will help you to do that. Okay, yeah. I'm also wondering, too, would that, um, just to try to link the two topics, is that one of the stumbling blocks right now in terms of the of cosmology? Is this the computing power? Like, is are, are certain of the, the rival theories that are offered to explain these astronomical observations as part of the problem, they can't actually crank out the the implied predictions that it just takes too long to, to solve the model? Or is that not really a, a problem in that area? Uh, I don't think that this is uh, currently uh, the, the main problem. So um, it, it's certainly true, you know, that uh, p these people are also running their codes on supercomputers and it takes a long time. So, But, but that's mm -hmm. pretty much where um, the similarity uh, stops. Um, I, I think that uh, right now in, in cosmology, the the biggest question is really how to combine all the different types of data that we have, you know, and not only mm. look at um, not only look at the galaxies and not only look at the galaxy lenses and not only look at the cosmic microwave background. So you have all these isolated areas, uh, but you have to find a way um, to uh, compare the um, 
goodness of the prediction of um, one model to all of these kinds of data. And so this is an area where I think that the the software development um, is is right now actually much more important than just the, the brute computing power. And I actually think that machine learning will do a lot to advance uh, this area. And we're, we're currently seeing the beginning of that. Okay, well, great. Um, I guess the this last question I have for you is for people who are interested in these ideas or if they want to follow you and, and your work, can you point them to, to some resources? Like where, where can they find you and, and or if they want to learn more about these issues? Well, I'm I'm in the great position that for all I know, I'm the only person with the name Sabine Hossenfelder. So if you want to know anything <laughs> about me, you just Google my name and it will bring up, you know, everything from my personal homepage to my YouTube account to my Twitter feed and my blog and everything. It's not complicated. Okay, okay great. Yeah. Also, folks, um, if you go to BobMurphyShow.com slash 87, that's this episode number. I'll also put some links, uh, Dr. Hossenfelder, to, to your website and so forth. Well, th thank you for your time. I thought this was a fascinating conversation and um, good luck on, on coming up with that theory that, that solves the problem of, of the observations. Thanks for having me. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com. <laughs>